amen and hallelujah crowd because I heard the amens and hallelujahs as the bearded mustached wonder known as Paul Tripp spoke. So I expect some hallelujahs, some amens during the sermon this morning, all right? Uh, if you're new here, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors uh, of Cross Point uh, Church. Glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, we're going to dive in this morning to the final ser- uh, sermon of a series that we've been working through for the past five weeks or so. We're we're in a vision casting series, and so if you're new here uh, or if you've been around for quite some time but you've, you've missed a week or two over the course of the last month or so, I would highly commend uh, you going to our website and listening to the podcast from the last few weeks to kind of connect the dots to, to where this vision casting series is going, has gone, how we've gotten to where we are this morning. I'm going to attempt to connect the dots to summarize briefly, uh, but I think uh, you'll be served well by going to the website and en- engaging those uh, sermons in their fullness. We began this series with the following simple yet profound statement, and the statement is this, everyone everywhere is being discipled. The, the issue is not, uh, are you a disciple? Rather, the question is, who or what uh, are you a disciple of? We all live in a particular time and a particular place in human history, and this time and place are not neutral. Uh, you and I, we live in perhaps the most contested space the world has ever known, the perfect cultural cocktail, as I've said for weeks, of moralism and suburbanism, beckoning us with the same words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, follow me. The voice of moralism calls us to a life of performance in the name of earning God's love and favor, declaring there are good guys and there are bad guys. So be a good guy and God will love you. The voice of moralism loves to watch you dance between the two extremes of pride and despair. Pride when, when you think you're, you're getting it right in terms of obedience to God and despair when you fall short. And then there's the cultural giant of suburbanism, perhaps the greatest cultural giant standing in the way of the gospel in our context. I've shared this quote throughout the entirety of this series. Jared Wilson, in his book, The Imperfect Disciple, he says, I think the spirit at work in the suburbs tends to smother the Christian spirit. The message of the suburbs, in a nutshell, is self-empowerment, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment. Self is at the center and all things serve the self. The primary values in suburbia, he says, are convenience, abundance, and comfort. In suburbia, you can have it all, and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. Or as my buddy Ross Luster said in a church planters gathering I went to a couple, weeks ago, a couple months ago, he said, you have to fight hard for genuine community in places that revolve around the cult of the standalone nuclear family unit. You have to preach and believe the scandalous gospel of grace in environments designed around performance and self-help. You have to remind people of God's great mission and their place in it in the midst of routines, school runs, commutes, and survival. And we've been talking about these things for weeks now. We, we do. We live in perhaps the most contested space the world has ever known. This perfect cultural cocktail of moralism and suburbanism. These voices calling out to us, inviting us to live lives of suppression, distraction, isolation, and consumption. But Jesus offers us something better. Jesus invites us to live lives of celebration, connection, community, and contribution. 
And so over the course of the past few weeks, we spent some time unpacking the first three of those gospel rhythms, celebration, connection, and community. Celebration has to do with the gospel story at large. It's a high-altitude way of thinking about the gospel, that we have every reason to be the most celebratory people on the planet, a rowdy bunch. We've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We've gone from spiritual orphans diving in the dumpsters of depravity to beloved children of God. We're not part of a story that involves a deistic God who wound up the clock of human history and then checked out on his creation, leaving us to figure all of this out on our own. We're not part of a story that involves a God who expects us to perform in order to earn his love. We're not a part of a a story involving multiple gods, a story in which we have to figure out which God will win in the end and whether that's a good thing or not. We're not a part of a story in which you and I are nothing more than the product of time, matter, motion, and chance, a story in which we've We've all evolved unintentionally from primordial sludge into the glory of man. That's not our story. We're a part of a story, a divine drama that involves a God who not only creates but reveals himself to his creation. A God who willingly became a character in his own story in order to rescue the very ones that rebelled against him. A God who heals, a God who resurrects, a God who cares, a God who believes in happily ever afters. That's the gospel story that you and I are invited to celebrate. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But it's not just about the celebration of the bigger gospel story. It's also about connecting your story to the bigger gospel story. It's about the gospel in you. That's the connection rhythm. We're talking about how the gospel matters in light of your unique past. How the gospel matters in light of your unique struggles with sin and unbelief. How the gospel matters in light of of the unique ways that you battle the attacks of the enemy. How the gospel matters in light of the unique things that you come face to face with circumstantially in life. And so a couple weeks ago, uh, we spent some time taking some notes on ourselves, a gospel fluency version of the Myers-Briggs, you might say, with the hope that, that we would all better understand how the gospel speaks into our lives particularly and uniquely so that we might experience more and more of the transforming power of the gospel at work in the everyday rhythms of our lives. That the more we grow in understanding our particular present tense need for the gospel, the more we will grow in a deeper love and appreciation for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So that the cross just looms larger and larger throughout the course of our Christian lives. Which is not easy in a moralistic suburban context. Moralism is an enemy of the rhythm of connection because it it calls us to behavior modification rather than gospel transformation. Moralism calls us to, to work on changing the externals to to modify our external behavior rather than dealing with the internal. And so you could say that moralism doesn't take the gospel rhythm of connection deep enough. Suburbanism is a barrier of the gospel rhythm of connection because it distracts us from slowing down long enough to consider the implications of the gospel in our lives in the first place. And so in suburbia, it's not that, that the gospel rhythm of connection doesn't go deep enough. It's that people rarely experience this gospel rhythm at all. Suburbia offers us every cultural excuse in the world to do everything we can to keep from being cut to the heart. We're just so busy. We're distracted by a dozen different things in any given moment. And thus the gospel gets reduced to this past and and future tense power of God saving us from hell and setting us up for the afterlife but having no implications on everyday living. I would argue that this rhythm, the connection rhythm, the gospel in you, is probably the hardest one for us to wrap our minds and hearts around, particularly in this context. But here's the good news. 
God never intended for us to go at this stuff alone. We talked about this last week. God never intended for us to sit in isolation and sort out the reality of how the gospel comes to bear in our lives. Rather, God intended for us to work out the implications of the gospel in our lives in the context of a covenant family. And so last week, we talked about the third gospel rhythm of community. It's not just about the gospel in you, but the gospel with us. We talked about Uh, In Acts chapter two, the beauty of a a covenant community devoted to feasting on the word of God. We talked about the beauty of a covenant community devoted to self-sacrificing conformity for the sake of the gospel. A covenant community devoted to breaking bread with one another, praying with and for one another. A covenant community empowered by the spirit and awestruck every time the spirit moves. A covenant community devoted to being present with one another, both as we gather in contexts like this and as we scatter. And a covenant community devoted to praise and adoration of our good, glorious, and gracious God. That's what we looked at last week. Experiencing the fullness of this gospel rhythm, the rhythm of community, is also all the more challenging in our context, if you think about it. Those two competing voices of moralism and suburbanism call us, invite us to live lives of isolation. The competing voice of moralism tells us, again, it's all about performance. We must perform a certain way around others, even those in our covenant community, which is why you can be part of a community group and still be living a life of isolation, only willing to go so far in being known by others. The voice of moralism, it it, it essentially calls us to put the best version of ourselves in front of each other, to hide behind the fig leaves of our own self-wrought righteousness. And so only when we respond to the scandalous grace of God that we experience in the gospel of Jesus Christ, are we free to put those fig leaves down? To declare that we're, we're so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but we're so loved that he was glad to do it. That's what the gospel declares. Only the gospel can empower a person to let their guard down, to know others, to be known by others, to know and experience the fullness and beauty of the church as a family. And then there's the competing voice of suburbanism as it pertains to that gospel rhythm of community. The suburbs oftentimes create this form of pseudo-community where you can wave at your neighbors as you drive home from your last outing and then pull into your garage never to be seen by them again until you leave your house the next time. The cry of of suburbia um, also can become a, I won't bother you with my problems if you don't bother me with yours. Because again, we're talking about something very similar to moralism. Suburbanism is all about keeping up appearances. We're talking about the land of well-manicured lawns and pressure-washed driveways. Meanwhile, behind the, the walls of many of those homes is brokenness. And no one's invited into that brokenness, including ours oftentimes, if we're honest. We're afraid to reach out and ask for help, even a, a cup of sugar, because we don't want to come across as being perceived as though we don't have it all together. And thus we remain isolated, afraid to enter into the brokenness of others and afraid to invite others into our brokenness. And then again, there's just the sheer busyness of life in a suburban context that keeps us isolated from the family of God, juggling the the church as a ball that might be dropped at any given time if, if things get too hectic, rather than embracing the church as a gift of God's grace that informs all other areas of life in light of the gospel. And so if I could summarize this series thus far, we've talked about the gospel story 
the rhythm of celebration. We've talked about the gospel in you, the rhythm of connection. We've talked about the gospel with us, the rhythm of community. And this morning, we're going to talk about the gospel to others, the rhythm of contribution. And we're going to do so by going back to the very same passage that we looked at last week. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we'll be again this morning, verses 42 through 47. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's maybe difficult to understand, take that as the church's gift to you. Happy fall. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and and we'll get to work. God, I pray this morning that we would see the privilege that we have, the opportunity that is in front of us to embark as one of many on a great adventure at the high seas. We have an opportunity to pick up an oar, to begin to row for your glory if we're not already doing that. That the gospel rhythm of contribution is not a call for people to respond out of obligation, but rather a call to respond in light of the graciousness and generosity of our good God who entered into our darkness in order to to bring us into your marvelous light, God. Would you help us to see the beauty and wonder of the story that we're a part of this morning and the opportunity that we have to play a small yet eternal and significant role in the expansion of your kingdom and the building of your church. God, would you do all that, Holy Spirit? Would you awaken our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to receive all that you have for us through your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been working our way through Acts chapter 2 through, throughout the course of this series, um, and, and it's a fascinating chapter of the Bible. It tells of the day of Pentecost, as many of you know, a day on which the Holy Spirit came in power, unifying God's people to declare his mighty works, a day on which Peter preached his sermon declaring the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and 3,000 people were converted that day. And Luke doesn't just tell us about the mass conversion of all these people. He also gives us a picture of this new family of believers living in light of the gospel, which is a a critical, oftentimes overlooked detail. Think about this for a second. These are new converts. There there are a lot of people who come to Acts chapter 2 and they go, I can never do that. That's for the super Christians. That's for those who have lettered in Christianity and have their varsity jacket. And yet, if you look at Acts chapter 2, that's not what we see at all. If you've ever thought that what you see in Acts chapter 2 is for those who are a little further along in their journey with Jesus, let the record show that Acts chapter 2 gives us a picture of a family of infants in the faith who have been changed and are being changed by the power of the gospel. That's Acts chapter 2. Last week, I I attempted to draw out of this, this same passage those things that seem to more categorically fall under the gospel rhythm of community But it's really just not that easy. The the rhythms of community and contribution are difficult to untangle from one another. A gospel community is a contributing community. And so much of what we talked about last week could be considered in light of the contribution rhythm. One of the ways we live lives of contribution is by praying with and for one another, as we looked at last week. Another way that we live lives of contribution is by inviting others into our home to break bread. And on and on we could go with respect to those things that we talked about a week ago. But for the sake of simplicity and clarity, let's do this. I want to I devote our attention 
uh, primarily this week to verses 45 and 47 of this passage. Let's read the entire paragraph and then we'll consider the implication of those two verses. It says this, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That one way to summarize the gospel rhythm of contribution would be to say, as the gospel works in us, we get the opportunity, honor, and privilege of having the gospel work through us. But that's, that's just vague enough that we could walk out of here not knowing what to do with that, right? And so if I could simplify it as much as possible, what it means to have the gospel work through us, the gospel rhythm of contribution is really about two things, radical generosity and evangelism. Radical generosity having to do with time, talent, and treasure, Evangelism having to do with interceding, investing, and inviting. And so if you're into alliteration, this is a great Sunday for you. I don't do this often, so enjoy it. Let's, let's take those two things, radical generosity and evangelism, and let's spend a little time on each of them. If you look at verse 45, you, you see that the gospel rhythm of contribution involves radical generosity, first of all. It says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We're talking about such a commitment to radical generosity in Acts chapter 2 that many scholars in response to this passage have cried communism. We know that's not the case because the idea of private property is found throughout the scriptures. Even verse 46, they broke bread in their homes. We also know that according to the scriptures, stealing is a sin. The Bible doesn't teach communism, but it does teach radical generosity. Again, though I'm not a huge fan of alliteration in the church, I find it to be overused a bit at times, I do find this language of time, talent, and treasure to be helpful because all these things are gifts that God has given us to steward for his glory. The gospel working through us for the sake of others will require the giving of our time. The gospel working through us for the sake of others will require the giving of our talent. The gospel working through us for the sake of others will require the giving of our treasure. In working our way through this series, um, I'm, I'm more convinced than ever that the other gospel rhythms that we talked about leading up to this Sunday, celebration, connection, and community, play a critical role in our willingness to give of these things that God has gifted us to steward. For the sake of the gospel. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Let me come back to the rhythms and unpack radical generosity. Think about this. Going back to the rhythm of celebration, the gospel story, we have every reason to be the most celebratory people on the planet, a rowdy bunch. We've gone from spiritual orphans diving in those dumpsters of depravity to beloved children of God. And it's all because the author of this redemptive historical drama willingly became a character in his own story in order to rescue the very ones who rebelled against him. That's the gospel. That Jesus gives us both the pattern and the power for radical generosity. He gives us the pattern in that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. The way of the cross is undeniably the way of radical, sacrificial generosity. But not just the pattern 
but also the power to be generous. Because as we soak in the lavish grace of God in Jesus Christ, this gospel story and all of its beauty, it has a way of moving us. It has a way of fueling us, compelling us. How can I not give of my time, talent, and treasure when God gave his only son in order to make me a son? Going back to the connection rhythm, the gospel in you. The the connection rhythm reminds us that the, the, the gospel, again, is not just a past tense and future tense reality. Rather, the gospel has implications for the everyday rhythms of life. I don't have to look back 20 years to think about the generosity and grace of God in my life as a teenager when I first encountered the gospel and came face to face with the beauty of Jesus Christ. I don't have to go back to, to those moments that are so far in the rear view mirror to be moved toward generosity. I can go back to this summer where I was freed from a, a savior complex. If you wanna hear more about that, go back and listen to the sermon from two weeks ago. I experienced the liberating power of the gospel this summer, summer 2017, in a significant way. And thus, there's present tense fuel in the tank that compels me to be all the more generous with my time, talent, and treasure. That the more we grow in understanding our present tense need for the gospel, the more we will grow in a deeper love and appreciation for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that love and appreciation for the person and work of Jesus will compel us to say, spend me for your glory, God. And then there's the community rhythm, the gospel with us, that if we isolate ourselves from others, there are no others toward whom to express radical generosity, right? It's in knowing the story of others and sharing our lives with them that we see the needs that we can actually enter into and engage with our time, with our talent, with our treasures. And again, I'm not just talking about treasure here. Let me be, let me be very clear. Though we can and should consider how God might call us to bless others and serve others in tangible ways, sometimes the best thing we can do for another person is to give them our time, to be with them, to listen to them, to walk with them through something. Sometimes the best thing we can give another person is our talents. Like to every musician and vocalist in this church who steps on this stage week in and week out, thank you for gospeling me because you do that. Every time we gather in this place, your contributions of your talents is the gifting of the gospel to me and everyone else in this room. And I could just give example after example there. But, but suffice it to say that, that the gospel rhythms that we've talked about prior to this Sunday, the rhythms of celebration, connection, and community, they play a critical role in our willingness to em- embrace and give our, our lives to uh, sacrificing our time, talent, and treasure for the sake of the gospel. Now let me get even more practical for a moment and put some tracks to this thing because every church is different in terms of of how to embrace these gospel rhythms that should be true of any church. And so let me just give some practical ways that you can embrace a life of radical generosity as Crosspoint Peachtree City. If you've been around uh, throughout the course of this series, you've seen this graphic before. This is a strategy that we're rolling out, present tense, for how to see the gospel uh, work more fully in our lives in the, in the midst of the everyday rhythms. And so, as you'll notice, if you are new, we're not looking to be the over-programmed church. We're really trying to move people toward three environments. This is one of those Sunday gatherings as we come into this place. This is where the proclamation of God's word happens. This is where we receive of the elements Uh, Jesus's broken body represented by the bread, his shed blood represented by the cup. Communion happens here. Baptisms happen here. Um, For the most part, 
the giving of tithes and offerings happen here. The collective song of the family of God coming together happens here. Pointing our kids to Jesus in a strategic way happens here. But we can only go so far here, right? We can't dialogue in this place about the implications of the gospel in light of Acts chapter 2. That would be socially awkward. And so we try to move people into living rooms throughout the community week in and week out where we can open up this same passage of Scripture and grow in gospel fluency together as we talk about the implications of the gospel in light of whatever passage of Scripture we happen to find ourselves as a family moving forward in unity. Also a community group, because it's roughly a dozen people who are sharing their lives with one another, I would argue is the context in which you experience the church uh, under the banner of that word picture as a family most surely. Because it's, it's just small enough that you can't function as a wallflower like you can in this room, but it's just big enough that there are probably going to be people who are different than you that you disagree with as it pertains to the ways they parent, the ways they would treat a home, that you gather in, the, w- the ways that they even handle the dialogue that you're a part of as you, as you gather in a living room to talk about the implications of the gospel. And so it's God's sanctifying work in your life to be a part of a, a small subset of a church family like that. But even in that context, in the context of community groups, you can only go so far. There's only so much you can unearth in a room filled with a dozen people over the course of two hours on any given week. Um, time is a constraint, the, the fact that, that we're in mixed company is a constraint because sometimes you're just not going to share things uh, when, when both genders are represented in a room. Sometimes you're just not going to share things because 12 people are in a room. It doesn't matter who those 12 people are. And so we want to get even smaller and more form-fitted in what we're calling gospel alliances, which are meant for the sake of equipping one another to fight the good fight of faith, and then secondly, coming alongside one another in the trenches to fight, to war in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life with the gospel as the weaponry. And so if you think about these three environments and you think about radical generosity, that language of time, talent, and treasure, let me just walk you through these things very quickly. In a Sunday gathering context like this, as far as time goes, you being present as much as you possibly can, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but that's a gift to the church. You being here is not just about what you get out of it, but also what you give. It's about the conversations that you're a part of before and after this service that are encouraging, that are challenging to other people. It's about the voice that you bring to the collective song of the church as we sing together. It's about the visible display of the body of Christ as we make long lines in these aisles to come receive the bread and the cup together as the family of God. And so for some, I would argue the call to radical generosity is simply a call to be radically present. As far as talent goes in this context, we have, we have numerous serving teams that could spend you for God's glory in the context of a Sunday gathering. Jason's mentioned those uh, even during the announcement time. We have nearly 50 kids that we seek to point to Jesus on the other side of that wall every week. They're, almost, they're about to outnumber us, a little army of ankle biters. We have, we have people who would never find their way into this auditorium were it not for people planting uh, signs in the ground out on that front lawn. Were it not for the Connect team, we'd, be, uh, we'd, we'd come face-to-face with an empty hallway every Sunday when we walk in. Every one of us is, whether you know it or not, is impacted by the prayer team who, on the other side of that wall, prays for every one of you in this service before this service ever even happens. Again, I said it before, those who step on this stage week in and week out play a significant role in, in helping us, rallying us to worship God through song. Those who occupy that booth in the back that are sitting in the back of this auditorium right now help us to do that seamlessly. 
without distraction. And so for some, the call to radical generosity is simply a call to say, sign me up, bro. Where, where do you need me? I'm happy to get, get my hands dirty for, for the kingdom of God. As far as treasure goes, I don't think it's any surprise that the church operates on a budget, right? I mean, we kind of, it's kind of the don't talk about it, like sex and alcohol and church budgets. Like it just kind of gets lumped in with these other things. But it's true. Every church operates on a budget. Sundays when we gather, it's when we receive our tithes and offerings. And so this kind of falls under this category. And you need to know that without your radical generosity, we would not have the space. We would have to let it go. Without your radical generosity, we would not have the staff that we have um, and we would, we would have to figure out an, another way to accomplish what we're seeking to accomplish in the day in and day out. Without your radical generosity, uh, we would not this past year have given $30,000 to church planting initiatives all over the world. That's unbelievable. And so I'm, I'm going to do something uh, fashionably uncool and I'm going to put some numbers up on a screen behind me because I want you to know that uh, last September 1st, 2016, all the way through August 31st, we as a church had an approved budget of about $262,000. What we received was about $285,000. That's amazing, right? We should, that's something to celebrate. That's, that's incredible. That's God's grace and generosity through his people to see his church move forward for the sake of his glory, and now a new budget year begins, which means my heartstrings just start doing crazy, gross things. But, but our new budget, you can see, $326,000. That includes things like um, uh, lease increases for us to be in this space. It includes the fact that, that this is the first 12-month cycle where there is no external support coming in for us, and we have to own it for ourselves. It includes bringing Jason on in the fullness of the capacity of a full-time staff member, bringing James on an extra day so that he can accomplish some things that he was unable to accomplish as a one-day-a-week staff member of this church. It includes us even giving more to church planting initiatives all over the globe. It helps us to point those kids to Jesus in a better, more strategic way moving forward. And on and on and on I could go. And you'll notice that underneath 2017, 2018, I left a blank because September is the first month of this new fiscal budget year for us. And so it's really just a, a rallying cry that if you're, if you're part of this church and you've been a part of this church for quite some time, it's a... It's a call to remain faithful in, in sacrificing in this way and in, in being radically generous in this way. If you're new, if you've been around, this is your first Sunday or you've been around for a few weeks, a few months, you're trying to figure out, do I have a place here and can I make an impact? The answer is yes. We're a four-year-old church. We have not metaphorically started kindergarten yet. That's how young we are. And, and so if you're wondering, if I invest my life, my time, talent, and treasure into this church, does it matter? Yes. It has significance in the sense that it could determine whether this church has a presence in this community for years to come. And so uh, I would love for you to, to press in and be a part of what we're doing here. And if you want to talk more about that after the service, let's, let's connect. That's just Sunday gatherings, okay? There's also the context of community groups using that language of time, talent, and treasure. Again, I think it's hard for us to think this way, but when you think of a community group, it's not just the question of, should I show up this week based on what I think I'm gonna get out of it? But every time we don't show up, we rob other people of what we would have contributed to the dialogue. We rob other people of the, the opportunities that we would have had to pray for them. We, we rob 
the, the kids in that group of having our children present with their children as they're learning what the church looks like and how she, how she functions, what she's meant to be. That's time. As far as talent goes, when I think of my community group, I'm thankful that there are some who are chefs in our group. Otherwise, breaking bread together would be gross. There are others who are the administrators of our group so that uh, setting up childcare people is not mass insanity. There are others who are prayer warriors. There are some who keep the group theologically grounded. There are others who help the group grow in gospel fluency. As far as treasure goes, in order for our groups to meet in homes, someone has to open their home up for those groups to meet in them. It costs money to have someone watch your kids while you carry on a a dialogue centered on the gospel. It never ceases to amaze me when someone who doesn't have kids in a community group says, hey, when you divide up that cost, why don't you include me? Because this church is a family according to the scriptures and I would like to be a part of the family in that way. It's just mind blowing to me. It costs money to buy food for all those bread breaking moments as a community group. If there's a financial need in your group, it might cost you to enter into another person's situation in your group. And then there are gospel alliances using that same language of time, talent, and treasure. As far as time goes, because gospel alliances are the most organic relationships of all, these are the people who can and might call you at any given time. I need you now. These are those kind of people in your life. Equipping others and being equipped by others To fight the good fight of faith is is time-consuming. And actually fighting in the trenches alongside other people to believe the gospel is even more time-consuming. As far as talent goes, we're all uniquely gifted. It's in those gospel-alliance-type relationships that we can use our giftings in the most form-fitted ways. If you're gifted in helping new believers take next steps in the Christian life, find a new believer or come find me and I'll help you find a new believer and we'll set up that gospel-alliance type of relationship If God's giving you eyes to see how the gospel relates to root idols, leverage that with someone else. As far as treasure goes, it's those gospel alliance type of relationships that that I find put the biggest dents on my wallet. I mean, it's a cup of coffee here with a person. It's a dinner there. It's inviting someone into our home who then raids our pantry because we're cool with that. And all of a sudden, the pantry is more bare than it was before that person showed up. Also, we're talking about the kind of relationships where people will share things that they might not share uh, in bigger contexts. I have this tangible need. I was embarrassed to share it with my community group. And all of a sudden, there's an opportunity to enter in. And here's the crazy thing. (laughs) The, The stewardship of time, talent, and treasure is not just about these three environments. It's about the whole of our lives. That on any given day, you have 1,440 minutes to steward for the glory of God through the balance of work and rest, through the balance of discipleship and evangelism, through the balance of the one another life and those moments where you're alone with God. When you think about your talents, it's not just about, oh, I've signed up for a serving team with the church, so I'm good, talents, check, got it. No, it's when we leave this place asking in the space between, God, how can you leverage the way you've gifted me for the sake of your glory and the advancement of your kingdom in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life? And as far as treasure goes, I think the church has, has poorly communicated this idea that, that God gets 10% and the other 90 is just mine to do with whatever I want with. That's not how it works. God gives us the fullness of the 100% that he's gifted us to steward for his glory. And we have to wrestle with the implications of all of it in light of the gospel. You begin to see just how radical this call to embrace the gospel rhythm of contribution really is. 
Only the, only the radical generosity of God toward us in the person and work of Jesus Christ could empower this in our lives. And now let's get even crazier. The gospel rhythm of contribution is not just about radical generosity, but also evangelism. Verse 47, And praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. We're, we're talking, when we talk about evangelism, I, I, want you, I want to be really clear that we're meant to focus on the first part of this verse. None of us can raise Lazarus from the dead. We can't do that. But what we can do is faithfully call Lazarus to come out of the tomb. That's what we're called to. Evangelism is praising God and having favor with all the people. And then we trust the spirit of God to raise people from the dead. We're talking about sharing our lives with those who don't yet follow Jesus in its most simplistic expression. Coming back to the very first week of this series, Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Again, think about how these rhythms work with each other because I'm convinced that all of these rhythms, the ones we've talked about up to this Sunday play a critical role in our willingness not to, just to embrace a life of radical generosity, but also a life of evangelism. Think about this. Going back to the celebration rhythm, we get to tell people the gospel story, a story that involves a God who not only creates but reveals himself to his creation, a God who willingly became a character in the story in order to redeem and rescue rebels like you and me. A God who heals. We get to tell people about a God who cares. A God who believes in happily ever afters. Going back to the connection rhythm, the gospel in you. We get the privilege of showing people how, um, the, the people who don't follow Jesus, how our story connects to that bigger gospel story. We get to share with them how the gospel matters in light of our unique pasts. We get to share with them how the gospel matters in light of our unique struggles with sin and unbelief in light of the unique things that we come face to face with in life. I've been quoting this guy for weeks now, Jeff Vanderstelt in his book, Gospel Fluency. He says it this way. He says, one of the keys to growing in gospel fluency is to regularly share what Jesus has done or is doing in our lives with others. Our stories are powerful demonstrations of the gospel's power to save. And so again, when I sit down with someone who doesn't yet follow Jesus I don't simply want to tell them about a gospel that saves them from hell and sets them up for the afterlife. I want them to understand that without the gospel, the summer of 2017 would have been miserable for me because I would have continued to walk in this self-savior complex as if I could save anyone in our community. That, that, that's not true. I can't. And so the embracing of the gospel was liberating for me. And I want someone who doesn't follow Jesus to hear that so that they understand that there are implications of the gospel in their lives when they wake up tomorrow. It's not just about when you lay your head on the pillow, if you died tonight, where would you go? But if you actually woke up tomorrow, would the gospel matter? And we can say, yes, it does. We get to help connect people who don't yet follow Jesus, their stories to that bigger gospel story how the gospel matters in light of their unique past, their struggles with sin, the unique things that they come face to face with in life. Again, Vanderstelt says it this way. He says, gospel fluency isn't just about talking. It's about listening as well. This requires love, patience, and wisdom. I'm amazed, he says, at how often well-intentioned Christians overwhelm people with a barrage of words. We go on and on about what we believe and what they should believe, assuming we know what others think, believe, or need. 
I often find that we are giving answers to questions people are not even asking or cramming information into hearts that are longing for love, not just facts. Our job, he says, is to testify to Jesus' work in our lives while also listening closely to others so that we know how to bring the truths of Jesus to bear on the longings of their hearts. We need to bring them to Jesus so he can meet their unique needs and fulfill their personal longings. So all of a sudden, evangelism becomes not just a get-out-of-hell-free card, but it becomes, man, your marriage is broken. Let me tell you how the gospel speaks into that. You're clawing your way toward an identity in your career, and it's crippling, it's debilitating you. Let me tell you how the gospel speaks a better word than what you're believing. And all of a sudden, evangelism comes alive. Going back to the community rhythm, we get to put on display the beautiful picture of the family of believers living in light of the gospel. We get to put the one another life on display in all of its messiness and beauty. We get to take those gospel rhythms of celebration, connection, and community and turn them outward for the sake of more people coming face to face with the beauty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's in both word and deed. If you want to get into alliteration again, it's with our lips and our lives. It's both verbal and visible. It's both declaring and displaying. Simply put, we we get to show the world what God is like through what we say and how we live as we tell people about the gospel and live our lives in light of the gospel. And I said this in week one, it starts with us. It starts with our hearts and moves outward into, into our lives, our families, our homes, our streets, our workplaces, our communities, our schools, and ultimately to the end of the earth. Though at times, I think this is, critical. Though at times God will call us beyond our own backyard for the sake of the gospel, most days you don't need a passport to be a missionary. Most days you just need to share your life with people who don't yet follow Jesus. Here's where hopefully alliteration might serve us well yet again. Thinking in terms of of evangelism, think of interceding, investing, and inviting. To intercede is to pray for someone who doesn't yet follow Jesus, to pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to work in their lives and show them their need for a true Savior, to pray for an opportunity to invest in their life. To invest is to serve them in some simple way, to show them that you love them and care about them. To invite is to welcome them into your life with greater intentionality, to invite them into conversations with gospel intentionality, to welcome them into a Sunday gathering or a community group or gospel alliance type of environment when it makes sense to do so. To welcome them to receive the grace and salvation of Jesus Christ. One of the most convicting questions that I think many of us in in evangelical circles could possibly sit with is this. Am I a friend of sinners? Like if I pull out my cell phone right now and look at my contact list, is there anyone who doesn't yet follow Jesus in that list of contacts? And and here's here's the good news of the gospel. If the answer is no, you can rest in the fact that Jesus was the perfect friend of sinners on your behalf and that he died for every imperfect evangelistic moment that's ever happened in your life. Isn't that good news? Because the gospel frees us to to put the fig leaves down, we can engage in a community group context and say, I stink at evangelism. I need some help. Help me. Let's talk through this. Let's work it out. We can seek to establish gospel alliances with other people who have those in their lives who don't yet follow Jesus and say, I'm terrible at this. Can I come hang out with you and your non-Christian friends? I promise I won't ruin it for you. And just see where God takes us in that. If you want to meet up, I would love to to engage you over a cup of coffee or lunch or breakfast, whatever it is, and and help 
provide some coaching so that we can mobilize you as a missionary in your own backyard because it's, it's part of the beauty of this adventure that we've been called into known as the Christian life. Again, coming back to those tracks on the ground for us as a church, our, our hope is that all three of these environments will serve you well as a missionary. You see the little, little circles that say missional opportunities that, that go out and back into each of these environments. That's because each and every relationship with each and every person who doesn't yet follow Jesus is unique. For some of us, the best thing we could do is invite someone who's not a Christian into this place on a Sunday morning. For others, that might be the worst thing we could possibly do. Some people may be compelled to explore the gospel, not by gathering with the church at large, but by sharing a living room with a small group of people wrestling with the implications of the gospel in everyday living, i.e. a community group. Still others will be compelled to explore the gospel by hanging out with you and maybe a brother or sister in Christ who you come alongside of more intentionally to fight the good fight of faith, a gospel alliance. As we leave and re-enter each of these environments, We must be strategic in determining the best ways to point our non-Christian friends to Jesus. There's no one-size-fits-all approach. The gospel never changes, but our missional strategy is ever-changing. Now, coming back as we close this morning, let me come back to this idea of the contested space. Let Let me close by unpacking for a moment what you and I are culturally up against as it pertains to this gospel rhythm of contribution. For one... We're up against everything that we've been talking about for the past few weeks. If those first three rhythms of celebration, connection, and community inform this gospel rhythm of contribution, then all of those things that we've addressed over the past several weeks regarding the contested space throughout this series is worth reconsidering. But we don't have time to do that this morning. So let's, let me just address this particular rhythm of contribution in terms of moralism and suburbanism in light of the context in which we live. Uh, on the one hand... Moralism can actually lead to radical generosity, if you think about it. It's possible to sacrifice one's time, talent, and treasure uh, as, an, as a way of performing in an effort to earn God's love, right? God loves the good guys, and the good guys tithe. God loves the good guys, and the good guys jump on a serving team from time to time. What a miserable motivation. The gospel rhythm of contribution is not about meriting anything. It's about being rescued by a generous God of grace and getting the honor and privilege of being spent for his glory. That's what we're talking about this morning. Moralism certainly can be an enemy of the rhythm of contribution in some ways, though. Remember, the summary of the gospel rhythm of contribution is this. As the gospel works in us, we get the opportunity, honor, and privilege of having the gospel work through us. And so if we're living our lives according to a moralistic paradigm, the gospel is not at work in us, and thus the gospel cannot and will not work through us. Even in our moments of radical generosity, because it's an act of performance, we'll end up pointing people to ourselves rather than Jesus. And even our evangelism will be futile because it'll consist of pointing people to a God whose love they must earn. It's evangelism absent of the very gospel itself, if you think about it. What about the competing voice of suburbanism? Well, going back to week one of this series, if the primary values of suburbia are convenience, abundance, and comfort, then the contribution rhythm just might be the most challenging for all of us. The gospel rhythm of contribution threatens every one of those values, does it not? There's nothing convenient, self-enhancing, or comfortable about being spent for the glory of God. There's nothing convenient, self-enhancing, or comfortable about radical generosity. There's nothing convenient, self-enhancing, or comfortable about interceding, investing, and inviting. If it's all about building our own kingdoms 
in which they're, they're laid out on a foundation of convenience, abundance, and comfort, then the gospel rhythm of contribution will always feel threatening to us. And, and then there's the simple fact that we live in the land of consumption. Uh, Roger Silverstone, in his work, Visions of Suburbia, he says this. He says, suburban culture is a consuming culture. Filled by the increasing commoditization of everyday life, suburbia has become the crucible of a shopping economy. There is an intimate and indissoluble link between suburbia and buying. And even the church can get lumped into that shopper's mentality, can it not? It's fairly common to view the church as a place to go and take whatever you can from it while failing to serve, sacrifice, love, and be the church. And so the declaration becomes, I go to church rather than I am the church. Living in a buyer's market, it can impact us in a number of ways, if you think about it. For one, living in the midst of a consumeristic culture makes us constantly aware of what we don't have. As one commentator so eloquently put it this week that I read, he said, in a consumeristic culture, you experience the deification of dissatisfaction, the making of a God dissatisfaction in our lives, that as the deification of dissatisfaction finds its way into the church, we constantly find ourselves noticing what could be better, constantly aware of what's lacking and yet never contributing to make things better. And it's not just dissatisfaction that's an issue in a suburban context, but also entitlement. We find ourselves caught up in a world in which we define luxury as necessity. We need that toaster oven that most of human history has lived without. And when we bring that kind of entitlement into the church, it's not only ugly, but it's oppositional to the good news of the gospel. The gospel doesn't declare that we're entitled to anything but, but sin, death, and the wrath of God. If it were about getting what we, what we deserve, we'd be done for. And so the, it's critical that we look through a gospel lens and acknowledge and, and cry out, thanks be to God for not giving us what we deserve, but graciously giving us his son. But it goes even further than dissatisfaction and entitlement because living in a consumeristic culture also makes it difficult to assign value to that which is most valuable. If you think about it, if your house caught on fire today, what would you take away from the home? Most of us would grab family photos, heirlooms, those art projects that our kids did for us somewhere along the way. The most priceless things in our lives are really those things that have little to no monetary value whatsoever. But suburbia conditions us to think otherwise, to hoard in the name of the temporal building of the kingdom of self. And so please hear me this morning when I say investing in the expansion of the kingdom of God is priceless. Investing in the lives of others for the sake of the gospel is priceless. It all comes back to our understanding, believing, and applying the gospel to our lives. The gospel shapes everything in life. The gospel affects everything in life. The competing voices of moralism and suburbanism beckon us with the same words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. Follow me. Follow me into a life of suppression, distraction, isolation, and consumption. But Jesus invites us into something far better. Jesus invites us to live lives of celebration, connection, community, and contribution. I said it in week one, I'll say it again. The Spirit of God is mightier than Bible Belt moralism. The Spirit of God is mightier than the Spirit at work in the suburbs that seeks to smother the Christian spirit. There is no redeemed version of moralism, by the way, but suburbia can be redeemed. That the church who fixes her eyes on Jesus and walks by the power of the Spirit will put massive dents in the gates of hell. 
And so the rallying cry this morning is, let's be that church. Let's put some big dents in the gates of hell.